All right, scripture reading for this morning is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Therefore, we must pay closer, pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Well, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, kids, we are so glad that you are here with us this morning, and you kids, you who are still kids at heart, have you ever read or had your parents read to you The Voyage of the Dawn Treader in the Chronicles of Narnia series? Yes, raise your hands. If you have read or if you have heard The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, good, then you will remember Eustace Clarence Scrub. I love the, the first line of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader has to be one of the best lines in all of literature. Admittedly, I haven't read a lot, but just... There once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. (laughs) What a great line. (laughs) Eustace Clarence Scrub, he was a puny little person who liked bossing and bullying everyone around, right? You remember that. He didn't have any friends because he really didn't like people. And he especially didn't like his cousins. Who were his cousins? His cousins were the main character, main characters of the Chronicles of Narnia series, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And he was so glad when he heard that Edmund and Lucy had to come spend the summer with him and his mom and dad because he knew he would have the whole summer to make their lives miserable. One day, Edmund and Lucy were admiring a painting of a ship at sea in one of the bedrooms. It was a Narnian ship. And they were admiring this painting, and Eustace walked in, and he started making fun of them for looking at the painting. And then eventually, all three of them were looking at the painting, and they realized that the ship appeared to be really moving. And and the water looked as if it was really wet. And the waves seemed to be really going up and down. And then they could smell the sea and feel the splash of the water on them. And before they knew it, they were in the sea in the painting. And who jumped off the boat to rescue them? Prince Caspian. Prince Caspian had jumped off the ship to rescue them, and there they were on board the Dawn Treader, heading to the eastern seas beyond the Lone Islands in search of the seven missing lords of Narnia. And Eustace Clarence Scrub was grumpier and meaner than ever. One night, a hurricane came upon them and drove them for 13 days. The the mast was broken. When the hurricane finally stopped, they were far out at sea. They had very little water, and they had to just keep going until they finally hit shore, an island of which they didn't know the name, which had high mountains. And as soon as they made it to shore, Eustace decided he had had enough, and he silently slipped away. And then 
he came upon a cave. You remember what was in the cave, right? A dragon. He knew a dragon had been in the cave because a dragon crawled out of the cave, and it was really like weak and, and kind of pale and, and sickly looking, and it made its way to this little pond, and then there it breathed its last, and he died. It died. But then it started to rain really hard. And Eustace realized he couldn't get out of that valley. And so the only thing he could do was go into the cave where the dragon had been. And C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia series, at that point said, because he hadn't read the right kinds of books, he didn't realize what he would find in there. And of course, what he found was treasure. It was the dragon's lair. And little Eustace, with his puny, little, angry, surly heart, sat on this pile of treasure, and his puny, little, surly, angry heart became greedy. And then eventually he fell asleep. And then when he woke up, what did he discover? Somebody tell me. What did he find out about himself? I hear it being whispered. A dragon. He had become a dragon. And Lewis writes this. He had turned into a dragon while he was asleep, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonous thoughts in his heart. He had become a dragon himself. He had turned into something he never thought he would become. Now, just in case you don't know the end of the story, I'll tell you the end of the story when I get to the end of my sermon. But for now, we all need to see, young and old alike, that that was the primary concern of the author of Hebrews in writing this letter. That these people would turn into something that they never thought they would become. He was writing in order to warn them of the danger of drifting, of turning from the message of Jesus Christ and over time, coming to discover that they had become people they never thought they could be. People who had rejected Jesus altogether. And with him, their only hope of salvation. Now, there are six warning passages. This is the first of six warning passages in Hebrews. So we don't have to try to say everything here in this uh, sermon this morning. But this one will be kind of an overview. When we get to Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to have another a warning passage there, we'll be able to go a little bit deeper than we will this morning. But we're going to look at this issue of drifting under the following three headings. First, the danger of drifting. The danger of drifting. Second, the consequence of drifting. The consequence of drifting. And third, how to keep from drifting. How to keep from drifting. So danger, consequence, and how to keep from drifting, but first let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we do pray that you would be speaking to us from this, your word. And Father, we pray, I pray, that for those of us who are here this morning that either are in danger of drifting, are in the process of drifting, or have drifted away and yet find themselves here, oh God, would you, would you bring rescue this morning? Would you re-anchor us to you? Would you bring us back into the safe harbor that is fellowship with Jesus? We pray all this in his name. Amen. 
So first, the danger of drifting. Look at verse 1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And that word drift is a nautical term. Picture a ship without an anchor or loosed from its moorings, and it's at the mercy of the currents. It's going to go wherever the currents are going. And the author of Hebrews, again, is writing to help these people recognize that they are in danger of drifting away from the message of Jesus. So let's just ask, what causes people to drift? What are some of those currents that can lead people away? Well, people, people may drift when they face trials of many kinds. Suffering comes into your life, sickness. There's a breakup that happens that shakes the foundation of who you are, maybe a divorce, job loss, economic poverty. I mean, there are all kinds of things that can happen that are trials, and it feels as though the waves are crashing down upon you. And you forget that God said in Isaiah chapter 43, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And you forget what God says in 1 Peter chapter 1, that the purpose of these trials is to actually refine our faith. And as a result, you drift away. So that's one, trials come upon us. But the second is this, unrepentant sin. You ignore that conviction of sin in your heart. You know it's sin, but you, you justify your actions. You explain it away in some sense. You compare yourself to others. You compare yourself to how much worse you possibly could be. And over time, your heart becomes hard. And it's as if you've been swimming and you find yourself you know, with your foot caught in a rock and, and you just can't resurface. So there's the danger of unrepentant sin that causes people to drift away. You can drift into the riptide of deconstruction. And we're going to talk about deconstruction over the coming weeks as we come back to these warning passages. But remember, a riptide, or better said, a rip current, is a strong, narrow channel of water that, that pulls you quickly away from shore. It's impossible to swim against it. Even the strongest Olympic swimmer can't swim against a riptide or a rip current. You can only swim out of it. If you think about the cultural riptide that is sucking people out to sea, our own brothers and sisters, some of your own family members, there is on the one side of that rip current, the thing we've talked about already, the reality that we live in an age of secularism and, and progressive individualism, meaning there is no God, meaning is whatever you make of it. There's that on one side of the current, and on the other side is this cultural phenomenon. You know it's a cultural phenomenon because it has its own hashtag, and that is deconstructionism. And we have people who are being sucked when you drift, you can drift in our day and age toward that riptide, that rip current, and be taken far out to sea. But, but here's the thing. The nautical term here in Hebrews chapter 2 doesn't have to do with a storm. It doesn't have to do with the kind of, you know, a rip current or a riptide. It simply has to do with the fact that when a, when a ship is without anchor or without mooring, even though the water is calm, it will drift. It will drift. It won't stay there. When, when Wendy and I go kayaking, we, it's, you know, 
We go to Canadice Lake because it's very calm. If the wind speed's over 10 miles an hour, we don't go. <laughs> we don't like waves. And, and, but we know that no matter how calm Canadice Lake is, we, we, when we take the kayaks off the car, we can't just set them in the water. They have to be on the shore a little bit. Because even though the water's calm, they will drift. And that's, that's what the author of Hebrews is warning about. We don't have to do anything in order to drift away from Jesus. Our hearts are prone to wander as the hymn goes. It doesn't take any effort to drift. C.S. Lewis, in another one of his uh, uh, works of fiction, The Screwtape Letters, envisions a senior devil training a younger devil, junior devil, how to lead Christians astray. And he says this, It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. You will drift if you do nothing. You will drift along the fundamental orientation of your heart. Whatever your heart's true desire is, whatever your heart's true north is, that is the direction toward which you will naturally drift without having to do a thing. The author of Hebrews is warning about the consequence. So let's take a look at the consequence that he points out. The consequence of drifting. He warns of greater judgment for those who drift. Take a look with me at verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just, um, a just retribution, okay, now stop there, let me remind us of what we looked at last week. The end of chapter 1, the author of Hebrews was comparing two sets of messengers, the angels, the angelic messengers on the one hand, and Jesus on the other hand. Now, Acts chapter 7, Galatians chapter 3, both point to this idea that the angels, you know, angelic beings were present and, and part of the delivery of the Mosaic law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is, listen, <clears throat> the angels were from God delivering the Mosaic law. However, you Christian Converts from Judaism who are being tempted to revert back into Judaism because of persecution and culture, let me tell you that the messenger who is Jesus is far superior to the messengers who were the angels, and consequently the message of Jesus is far superior than the message of the angels. And he's reinforcing that fact right here, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. Again, he's not saying, you know, the message of the Old Testament was somehow uh, deficient. It was insufficient. The message of the Old Testament was not in some way defective. It was simply incomplete. But it proved to be reliable. And consequently, people in the Old Testament who refused to obey God's law were judged. And we can think of all kinds of examples. At the, kind of at the, at the meta level, you could think of the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years after the time of the Exodus. And you can think of the people of the wilderness, uh, of the people of God sent out into exile because of disobedience and sin. And then any point along the way, you can read of individual stories 
of the same. All right, so the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, Old Testament message, reliable. From God, delivered by angels, people were held accountable, and then we get this if-then, this argument from the lesser to the greater. How much more? So take a look at verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Well, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. Jesus proclaimed the message, the author of Hebrews said. The eyewitnesses to Jesus proclaimed the message as well. They confirmed the message of Jesus that Jesus had proclaimed. God himself bore witness to it through signs and wonders. How much more will we be held to account if we reject the message of Jesus? That's the point the author of Hebrews is trying to drive home. We will not escape the judgment of God if we reject the message of Jesus. It's just that simple. Now this is touching on the problem, the reality of apostasy. And we're going to come back to this idea numerous times throughout the, the letter as well. Do you hear what I just said about the danger of drifting? If, 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 again, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians. And he's saying if you drift away from Christ, you will receive the greater judgment which is not just an earthly banishment, but a spiritual and eternal banishment from God. But wait a minute. Isn't it the case that if you're a Christian, you can't lose your salvation? Isn't it true? You know, once saved, always saved? I mean, didn't Jesus say in John chapter 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me? And none that the Father gives me will I ever cast away. Didn't Jesus say that? Didn't Paul say in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, He who began a good work in you, he will be faithful, and he will complete that work that he began in you. So how can this work then if, on the one hand, a true Christian will never be lost, and yet on the other hand, the author of Hebrews has to warn these Christians about drifting away. Here's the problem of apostasy. Not all those who say they are Christians turn out to, in fact, be Christians. This comes back to what John says in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. He's talking about people who professed faith in Christ. We're going to get to Hebrews chapter 6, and we're going to see this image of people who had such an experience of what it means to be a Christian and yet are in danger of drifting away, of abandoning the faith once professed. So, apostasy. Someone who is a non-believer is not an apostate. More importantly for many of us, someone who is a struggling Christian is not an apostate. But someone who was once appearing to be a Christian, someone who gave every indication of being a Christian, but now has deliberately and definitively turned away, that is one who is apparently an apostate and is in grave danger. 
Hence the warning to persevere. Persevere, this theme throughout Hebrews. Yes, God preserves his own, but we must persevere. So how do we keep from drifting? Third point. The author of Hebrews tells us two things in this passage. And again, we're going to come back to these throughout the letter. The author does a great job of repeating in order to reinforce the things that we need to hear. And so two things that we're going to look at real quick in this passage as we wrap up. Pay close attention to the message of Jesus. That's what he's going to tell us first. How do you keep from drifting? Pay close attention to the message of Jesus and stay closely connected to the people of Jesus. Pay close attention to the message of Jesus. Stay closely connected to the people of Jesus. Take a look with me at verse 1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. That the word that's translated pay closer attention is also a nautical term. It means to secure an anchor or to make sure the, uh, you're working really hard to, to keep course against the currents that are pushing against you. And of course, that's the case, isn't it? It doesn't take any effort to drift takes great effort to stay on course. Know the message of Jesus is what the author tells us. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. He's talking about the message of the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is, the very son of God who became man, lived the life of perfect obedience to God, kept the Mosaic law at the heart level, just not, not just at the performance, external level. Live that perfect life of obedience to God in our place. And then went to the cross and took the punishment that we deserve, the wrath we deserve, the wrath that the author of Hebrews is warning about. Jesus went to the cross to take that wrath in our place so that all who look to Jesus for their salvation, who all who said, I'm going I'm to stand before God one day and I'm going to do so based on his record, that is Jesus, not my own, They'll be saved. And the author of Hebrews is saying, pay close attention to that message. Secure your heart to that message. Because if you don't, you will drift. If you don't, you will drift. Now, let me say this. If you're here this morning and you're doubting the message of Jesus, maybe you're someone who's never been to church, you've never professed faith in Christ, or you're someone who, you know, maybe you're coming to that point in your life where you're like, you know, it, it was mom and dad's faith up until now, but now, you know, I'm a youth, I'm a teen, I'm beginning to think about, is, do I, am I really going to own this for myself? Let me encourage you to look to the eyewitness testimony. Look, look again with me real quick at verse 3. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, right? The, the scriptures, the gospels, with the exception of Luke, are eyewitness testimony. Now, Luke is writing what the eyewitnesses told him, but Matthew, Mark, and John were eyewitnesses to Jesus. They were writing what they heard and what they saw. If, you, if you're questioning Christianity, let me encourage you to first, before you think about anything else, answer the question, who is this Jesus? And part of the way in which you can get to that answer is by simply asking, are these eyewitness documents, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, are, are these documents that can be trusted? Just, just at, a, you know, a, 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 at, a, at a historical um, you know, documentation, cultural level, the, the very same 
principles of historicity that, that secular culture applies to determining whether a document is something that can be considered authentic or not, go ahead and apply those to the Gospels. Here's what you'll find. These eyewitness accounts, by any measure, exceed the standard of reliability. And then you've got to reckon with something. You've got to reckon with the reality that based on those accounts, there's a church around the world, in every culture. And you've got to reckon that how can that be? At some point, you have to come back with, with this. I've got to reckon with the question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Because if he did, if these reliable documents attest to that, and the reality of the church attests to that, then that's going to create a tectonic shift in your heart if you will take it seriously. So, first, pay close attention to the message of Jesus, and then second, stay closely connected to the people of Jesus. Stay closely connected to the people of Jesus. Now, this is going to come out when we get to Hebrews 10, for instance, and, and the author of Hebrews says, don't forsake meeting together, but, but be together in order to cur- encourage one another daily. But it's hinted at here, even in this passage. I want you to notice the, the, the pronouns throughout here. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard and on. You know, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared... At first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. The author of Hebrews is putting himself alongside and among the very people to whom he's writing. He's, he's acknowledging the potential drift in his own heart as he warns them, knowing that he needs the same kind of warning. This is why it is so important that we here at Grace Church be a people without pretense. We cannot be a people who are putting on a front. We cannot be a people who are pretending to have it all together because we don't. We don't. We have to be a people who are willing to tell stories of grace, to be redemptively vulnerable in talking about our stories of grace, to be able to say, this is who I am, and this is who Jesus is. This is what he's done in my life. If that can be of any encouragement to you, that's why I'm telling this story right now. We need to be connected. Stay closely connected to the people of Jesus. And, and then even, I love this at the end of the passage, verse 4, well, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. Okay, so this is during the life of Jesus and during the apostolic age in Acts. There were all kinds of miracles that took place, healings that took place. Keep in mind what the author of Hebrews says now is pay close attention, attention to the message. He doesn't say, hey, you're in danger of drifting. Go seek greater manifestations of power. He doesn't say you're in danger of drifting. Go find a way to see some miracles or, or maybe be a miracle worker yourself. No, he says, pay attention to the message. Pay attention to the word. Listen to what Jesus said. Okay, that's an aside. But but real quick, let's come back to this. Look at how it ends. And by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What the author of Hebrews is doing here is saying, you know, when, you know when Paul said that that the ascended Jesus distributed gifts to the church, and that included people with speaking gifts, the, 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 the apostles, the prophets, the teachers, the preachers. 
And you know how the, the, the God gave his Holy Spirit to give gifts to each one of his people so that we could work together for the building up of the body of Christ until it reaches maturity? All those things are things that testify to the reality of who Jesus is. They are ways in which God is now confirming the message. As we love one another, and remember, Jesus prayed this way in John 17. As we love one another, we bear witness to the reality of who Jesus is. That's not just to testify to the outside world. That's to testify to our own hearts as well. Pay close attention to the message of Jesus. Stay closely connected to the people of Jesus. But, and we'll wrap up here, what do you do if you have drifted away? What do you do if you find yourself out at sea right now and you become the kind of person that you never thought you would become? Well, let's go back to Eustace, Clarence, Scrub. Eustace, again, was that little boy who had become a dragon. It seemed to him that he would be a dragon for the rest of his life. But one night, he was li- as he was lying awake, a huge lion came to him. And that lion's name was Aslan. Aslan. Who is Aslan meant to represent to us in the Chronicles of Narnia? Jesus. Aslan told Eustace to follow him. And then he led him to the top of a mountain where there was a garden. And in the middle of the garden, there was a, a well, and it was a big well. There were marble steps that were going down into it. And, and, and Aslan said, you can go in there, but first you've got to undress. And Eustace was like, I'm a dragon. I'm not wearing any clothes. But then he remembered, you know, dragons are kind of snaky-like creatures, and snakes can shed their skin. So maybe that's what Aslan meant. So he took his, his dragon claw, and he began scraping first the scales and, and then some of the skin. And he thought he got it all off, and he went over to the side of the well. But then in, as he looked in the water, he saw that all the scales were back again. And so he stepped away. He's like, okay, i got to do it over. So he, dragging claws and scraping the skin. And he thought he had it off a second time. Then he went, he went to the well, and there they were. And then a third time, same deal. And then Aslan said, you will have to let me undress you. At that point, Eustace was just like, I give up. And so he laid down on his dragon back. And here's how Lewis described what he felt. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled that beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. There it was lying on the grass, ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that very much, for I was very tender underneath now that I'd had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon, and soon I started swimming and splashing and found that I was a boy again. The only way back is the way you began. The only way back is the way you began. 
by submitting your whole self to Jesus. That's the way you begin the Christian life. It's the way you continue in the Christian life. It's the way you return when you've strayed far, far away. It's the way you return when you've strayed each and every day. This is why practicing repentance as a way of life is so vital. We do drift every way, in so many ways, every day. And yet there's the Father, always ready to welcome us home. As you do that, you will find alongside the paying close attention to the word and learning things you know, more about who Jesus is, you'll learn as you practice repentance as a way of life, as you go back the way you began, wholehearted surrender to Jesus, you will find that you don't just know things about him, you know him, and you love him. And you realize you're journeying toward a shore that will bring you greater joy than you've ever known before. And let me tell you, the work is worth it. Persevere. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you for the way in which you seal it to our hearts by the power of your spirit. And we ask that you would do that just now. Lord, that we would take to heart these truths that you have given us and that by your grace and your grace alone, we would persevere. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.